Good afternoon and welcome everyone. My name is Sarah Berg. I'm a patent litigation partner at Foley Coeg and I co-chair the intellectual property litigation section here at the BPA along with Laura and Jorkay. Thank you so much for joining us today for a webinar on the epidemic COVID Let me kick this off by introducing our two panelists today. Our first speaker will be Dean Farmer. Dean is a patent strategist the life science sector at who works with biotechnology and pharmaceutical companies at all stages of development. Dean also represents a number of venture capital groups, de-risking their pre-investment rounds by reviewing the science and data and overlay whatever intellectual property the academic startup may work to have. Dean's years working in the industry and two decades in patent law. He helps them understand risks and opportunities associated with various approaches to protecting their innovations and helps them develop and implement strategies centered on their business goals. Dean handles past procurement, portfolio management, IT due diligence, opinion, to operate, validity, ability assessment, area chemistry. Uh, Sarah? Yes. Uh, no one can hear you right now. Cool. Your your audio is very distorted. Maybe if you could be closer to the mic or something. Oh, okay. Um, is this any better? Oh, that's much better. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let me just lean in a little bit. Apologies for that. Uh -huh. um, so let me start that again. So thank you and welcome everyone. Um, oh, sounding okay? Um, let me introduce our two uh, speakers. So our two panelists today, um, our first speaker will be Dean Farmer. Dean is a patent strategist in the life sciences sector at Mintz Levin, who works with biotechnology and pharmaceutical companies at all stages of development. Dean also represents a number of venture capital groups in de-risking their pre-investment rounds by reviewing the science and data and overlay um, and whatever IT the academic institution or startup may purport to have. Dean's years working in the industry, as well as two decades in patent law, position him as a strategic partner for his clients. He helps them understand the risks and opportunities associated with various approaches to protecting their innovations and helps them develop and implement strategies centered around their business goals. Dean handles patent procurement, portfolio management, IP due diligence, and opinions, including freedom to operate, validity, and patentability assessments in the area of chemistry, pharmaceuticals, and biotechnology. He has been recognized as a leading patent lawyer by Legal 500, IAM Patent 1000, and has been a recipient of the Healthcare and Life Sciences Massachusetts Client Choice Award. Dean's PhD thesis work as a scientist focused on probing the minor group of B-DNA with a synthetic linked anthromycin analog known as pyrolobenzodiazepine dimer that cross-links DNA, Dean can correct me on the pronunciation later of all of these, and was designed to escape the DNA repair machinery. Published in 1988, it was the prototype that led to many companies' agency warheads in phase three clinical trials, AbbVie, Seattle Genetics, and AstraZeneca's Veridine. He earned his PhD in organic chemistry at Brown and was awarded the AT&T Brown Faculty Scientific Achievement Award. And Dean went on to study protein signaling in Stuart Schreiber's lab at Harvard um, and 
including he has had publications such as calcineurin is a common target of cyclophilin, cyclosporin A, and FK506 FK complexes. And after um, Dean, we will then hear from George Contreras. Uh, professor Contreras is the James T. Jensen Endowed Professor for Transactional Law, and he is the Director of the Program on Intellectual Property and Technology Law at the University of Utah S.J. Clooney College of Law. He also has a secondary appointment in the Department of Human Genetics at the University of Utah School of Medicine. During 2023, he is the visiting fellow at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Political Science. Professor Contreras' research focuses on intellectual property, technical standards, antitrust law, and science policy. He's the editor or author of 12 books and more than 150 scholarly articles and book chapters. During his career, he has served on the U.S. National Institutes of Health Council, the Advisory Council of the National Center for Advancing Translational Science and the National Advisory Council for Human Genome Research. He's also served as co-chair of the National Conference of Lawyers and Scientists. He was one of the co-founders of the Open COVID Pledge, which is a framework for contributing intellectual property to the COVID-19 response. And he sits on the World Health Organization's Advisory Council for the COVID Technology Access Board, CTAP. Professor Contreras's recent book, The Genome Defense, Inside an Epic Legal Battle to Determine Who Owns Your DNA, published in 2021, which has received praise from outlets ranging from the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, Nature and Stat, and it describes the landmark civil rights litigation that ended gene patenting in America. He's a graduate of the Harvard Law School and Rice University, and he's an elected member of the American. So I'm excited to hear from both panelists today. And with that, I'm going to turn this over to Dean Farmer for the first presentation. Thanks, Sarah. I appreciate it very much. <clears throat> um, thanks, everybody. Um, I really appreciate um, George's title. Uh, so the Boston Bar Association gave us the epidemic of COVID vaccine litigation back in January. I didn't realize what I was wading into uh, when I said yes to this. I'm glad it got pushed out until May. Uh, George picked the title, Not Just Another Patent War. Um, the subtitle I, I picked for my, my half is Two Prongs of the IP Litigation Among Six Players So Far. And so as we dive in, <clears throat> I wanted to try to be as dramatic as uh, all the intros to the litigation that we, uh, we surfaced. Uh, so just to give you a little bit of history here, remember there was a pandemic in case you forgot. Uh, what happened in late 2019, SARS-CoV-2 virus emerges in China. There's a worldwide pandemic. There's a need for an immediate prophylaxis and treatment. Scientists solved uh, the structure of the spike protein. Everyone heard about the spike protein of the virus in record time and published it, believe it or not, in March of 2020 uh, in science. And when this structure was published, it became the target for various ways to attack the problem. It wasn't just the development of a vaccine, but you might remember it was the target for antibodies, the target for small molecules. You might remember that Pfizer came on the market uh, with um, uh, as well a small a molecule. And then of course, vaccines to the virus and the virus is there on the left. And I'm sure everybody remembers seeing that famous picture all over the place with the spike proteins 
uh, stuck out. So that became the target for everyone early in 2020. Now, to deliver those sorts of payloads to attack the spike protein uh, in our bodies or to give us a prophylaxis to keep the spike protein from the virus attaching to our body to make us sick, we needed something to be able to deliver that. And so the vehicle that's out there today to do that is the lipid nanoparticle. So we need to talk about that for just a second. And so I searched all over the uh, internet and uh, I was almost going to put a picture on there from one of the clients that I get to work with, with one of my colleagues, James Whittle, who uh, works with that client. Um, but I decided not to put that one on there because that would be biased. I found this picture and it's from uh, Nano Letters uh, in 2020. And uh, the four components that make up this beautiful structure is ionizable cationic lipids, neutral lipids, cholesterol, and pe pegylated lipids. And they make this wonderful structure here. And inside there in pink are the mRNAs that are essential to producing the proteins that then get into our bloodstream and body that then tell our immune system to create those things which then get in the way of the spike proteins on the virus from attaching to our bodies and making us sick. Now, interestingly, for those of you out there that are in the LMP space, the various cholesterol analogs that you see on the bottom here are the things that give different shapes uh, to these LMPs. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit later on as we go into the litigation. So now the players. Who are the players? <clears throat> yes, I'm going through puberty still with my voice. But um, the players so far are the six here as we were coming through and combing through the litigation that's really gotten started in around 2020, 21, 22 or so. And um, I'm going to be talking about the intellectual property aspects of the litigation. Um, today, when I was telling my wife that I'm going to be doing that part, and then the second part of this talk today is going to be the waiver that people were not supposed to be litigating. My wife goes, oh, the sexy stuff. And I was like, what? She goes, George is going to be talking about that. Oh, he's going to get the fun part. And I was like, oh, <laughs> you know, oh, I, I thought I was getting the fun part, but George is going to do that part on the second half. So uh, that, that in case you're bored about mine, just wait. The, the really cool stuff is coming afterwards. But I'm going to be talking about the intellectual property litigation side on the lipid nanoparticles and the payloads, which is the mRNA. So the players that uh, are rising to the top right now in the litigation are Moderna, Arbutus, Acuitus, Alnylam, Pfizer, BioNTech, and CureVac. Now, you may be saying that, you know, are these the major players? Well, I have up at the top there so far, and two of the main players that everyone is talking about are the two that sell the vaccines. There's SpikeVax with Moderna, and then, of course, there's Comirnaty, with Pfizer BioNTech. And you might notice a couple of dollar signs there. Moderna in 2021 and 2022 responsible for about $40 billion in revenue. Pfizer and BioNTech uh, together are responsible for about $70 billion. So anytime, of course, you are generating dollars, those of us that uh, deal with uh, litigation or patents know that you put a big target on your back. And if you put a big target on your back, 
and then you're another uh, person that owns patents, you, of course, will go to your patent attorneys and go, will you please look in my patent estate? And if you can generate any claims or if I have any claims and the people with the dollar signs uh, are that the generating dollar signs, they may have inadvertently run through my patent estate. And if that's the case, would you be so uh, uh, generous with your time and look to see whether or not we have uh, any of those claims? Now, George sent me over an article early this morning and said, do you think there's anybody else out there that has seen any other players? And I said, well, I don't really know. So he sent me this and I about fell off my chair. So there are a lot of other players out there. And this this um, is actually from 2021. So down the lower right corner, you'll notice 2021. And as I was looking around this, I noticed that a number of names are not on here of other clients that I'm aware of. And so, as George pointed out, this is outdated because this is May of 2023. So there are many more companies out there that are generating LNP and mRNA uh, patents. And so you can imagine there's going to be many more uh, companies coming on the scene. Now, this will actually show you the patent landscape in terms of intellectual property um, litigation that's going on. Now, we have included here a little bit of European litigation that's going on as well, because uh, BioNTech, of course, is uh, situated in Germany, as is CureVac. CureVac is a very large company uh, in Germany, and uh, but I'm not going to be talking today because there's not enough time uh, about what's going on in the European venue, but we will talk a little bit about what's going on in uh, the United States. I wish I had more time because as I waded into this, I did want to run screaming and uh, yell at Sarah that I said yes to this, but I thought she would not be happy about that. So I, I went wading deeper uh, into what's going on. Um, the uh, cases have been filed. Um, at first, I was hoping there weren't many answers, but it turns out there are answers that have been filed and there are declaratory judgments that have been filed. And there are some uh, IPRs that have been filed and, and they have been adjudicated all the way to the end, uh, of course, to the uh, chagrin of some of the parties here that they didn't get the outcomes they wanted. And we're going to actually talk about that a little bit. So if you've come to hear what's going on, I think you're not going to leave uh, disappointed. So what I thought we would do is walk through uh, what's going on in some de detailed fashions, uh, fashion from a science standpoint and we're gonna look at some claims. So the first thing you might be interested in is a little bit on the science side, um, what actually is going on in these vaccines when you talk about the litigation? Well, you actually have to get down into what are the lipid nanoparticles and then what are the payloads? So we're gonna look at the vaccines of Moderna, uh, the vaccine, there's only one, sorry, the, the Moderna vaccine, and we're gonna look at the Pfizer vaccine. And so what, what's really going on here is there's four components that make up the chemistry, if you will, of the what some people call the fat blob. So it's a blob and a circular um, a lipid nanoparticle that encases the mRNA. Now, you may be asking yourself why. Well, each of these um, complaints, and I'm going to show you some of the history that's outlined in these complaints because it's very important for some of these players to lay out why 
they are not being represented in the money. And so these, these lipids are very important in this story. So the Moderna vaccine has four components. It has an ionizable cationic lipid, which typically has a nitrogen here in the head and then these tails, they call them. There's a pe pegylated uh, lipid. That These are big players here that figure into the litigation. Then you have a phospholipid that plays into this, and then you have cholesterol. And then they play out in molar lipid ratios. And so these four here play out in these ratios here. So this is the Moderna vaccine. And then there's an MR mRNA. I haven't listed it here. It's not important at this stage, but it will play out in just a moment. Then you have the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine. It also has an ionizable cationic lipid. And you may look at this and go, it looks like a spider, but they are different. But it again has a nitrogen and some tails. And then you have your other component here that kind of looks the same, but they are a little bit different. And then you have, again, a phosphocholine, but look at this, virtually the same, DSPC, and then a cholesterol. And here we have the molar ratio as well, but they're different and you can see the numbers are different. Now the players that first filed suit and we go by the dates here and you can follow these. I'm gonna color coordinate them for you so you see as we're moving along and I'm watching the time. The players that first filed suit was Arbutus. So Arbutus early in 2022 launched the first volley. So they launched it at Moderna. So they launched six of their LMP patents in the District of Delaware infringement against Moderna. And when they launched their suit, Arbutus complaint alleged that Moderna infringed five of their patents. And these five patents, the claims recite varying percentages of lipids, making up a lipid nanoparticle carrier having a nucleic acid. And the next side will lay, uh, slide will lay this out for you. And it shows a representative claim for the first patent and also Moderna's general answer for why they believe they're not infringing. And they kind of lay out, you know, kind of, I have kids, and so I will say kind of occasionally, they lay out what these percentages are of each of these four. So here's the way it looks, and I'll leave it up for just a moment so you can try to digest this. So the claims, when you get into these lipid nanoparticles, are based on chemistry. So we'll go slowly through this, but I bolded it for you. So claim one basically boils down to a nucleic acid a cationic lipid, and remember we talked about Moderna has one of these and a cationic lipid, and it boils down to the amount, so it's the percentage. Remember we talked about percentages. And then a non-cationic lipid, which is antiphospholipid and cholesterol mixed. Remember, non-cationic and a cholesterol, and it comes down to the, to the percentage. And then it talks about the total lipid present with these, and then a conjugated lipid, half to two, two mole percent. And so this represents the this amount here, total. And then we have the answer from Moderna. Moderna has not infringed and is not infringing any valid claim of the 069 patent. Moderna's COVID-19 vaccine does not meet each and every element 
of claim one of the 069 patent, at least not, it does not comprise a nucleic acid lipid particle comprising the claimed lipids, including, for example, the cationic lipid in the claimed ratios. And all dependent claims of the 069 patent depend from claim one. Now, I looked at this and I said the cationic lipid in the claimed ratios. So the cationic lipid is at 50%, and the cationic lipid over here is 50 mole percent to 65 mole percent. So I looked through everything that was going on, and I just briefly looked at this. I wasn't going to spend a lot of time on it, and I noticed that there wasn't a clear distinction here. So there was a lot being thrown on the wall between the two. And again, this is at the very beginning. So the, the, the complaint is there, the answer is there, and there is a declaratory judgment that they've already filed. And so I went there immediately and Moderna is throwing out a non-infringement position in invalidity for double patenting, that there should be a double patenting against these earlier patents that Arbutus has and that they should be rendered invalid for obviousness type double patenting, uh, that these things are already expired. They also have a very strong argument in some ways for a lack of written description or enablement. And basically these, these patents go back very early uh, uh, in, in their written description and enablement description that the recited ranges, the cationic lipid, non-cationic lipid, the conjugated lipid, uh, and they also have another pretty good argument where they say, remember, the claim is for nucleic acids, but they're only talking about siRNA. They're not talking about mRNA. So Moderna kind of jumps over some of their arguments and they go right to the fact that, hey, you never talked about mRNA in your specification. So that's the Moderna Arbutus argument. The next uh, case that we look at is the Moderna Alnylam case that was filed about a month later. And then there was a follow on case when Alnylam had another uh, patent issued about four months later in July. So I want to hit that one quickly for you. So Alnylam uh, came after Moderna with the 933 patent. And I, I wanted to hit this one for you from a little bit of a different aspect. And they really go through the history first. And that's one thing I wanted to, to touch uh, here for you. So from the complaint, Alnylam presented confidential information to Moderna in 2013-2014. And I'll just call this out for you in the bold. Among the Alnylam intellectual property under consideration for the license, there was a pending LMP technology patent applications and patents that were presented to Moderna for a possible agreement. And they allowed Moderna to see all of this under a CDA. And in the second point here, Alnylam went on to say that they believe Moderna didn't possess a particular cationic lipid with biodegradable groups sufficient to form an LNP that would allow them to deliver RNA as a therapeutic and a vaccine. So Alnylam's basically saying in their um, complaint, they showed Moderna stuff. Back in 2014, Moderna didn't have the ability to make their own LNPs, and they walked away from this agreement back then. That's the real crux of the issue. They spend a lot of time developing that. Then they get to 
the the uh, infringement. They have this very long claim here, again, chemistry related. They lay out the one ionizable cationic lipid. Alnylam also sets up the same sort of um, claim against Pfizer. I just wanted to throw it in here as well so we don't have to duplicate uh, for time's sake. And you see the two are very similar. Pfizer sets up their defense. Moderna has not had to answer this complaint yet. They have some other things going on. I haven't answered it. But I wanted to show you how this defense is setting up. The defense that Pfizer is setting up here, again, very long history setting up. And I want you to see this. They start out their history by saying they go to the prosecution history of the 933. The 933 dates back three previous U.S. patent applications. They talk about the fact that alnylam goes for 40 paragraphs through a prosecution history. And they prosecute numerous patents here that they're asserting. And none of the patents look like these things. Then they say that Comirnaty publishes their, their virus, their vaccine with these structures. Then Alnylam files their disclosure for this future patent application, which issues as this patent that's getting asserted. And then they issue the claim here that they infringe. So they're basically saying only because we did this, did you file that. And so your previous file history has nothing to do with us. So that's how uh, Moderna and Pfizer are going after Alnylam in this particular application, uh, this particular case. Then we're coming in here for a landing and I'll, I'll, I'll be closing out. Arbutus uh, filed just recently here in April, uh, just a few days ago, about a month ago against Pfizer. Um, they're asserting five cases, two for manufacturing. Three of these are identical to the ones that are being filed against Moderna. Very similarly, the case looks uh, virtually identical to the one against Moderna. They're going after the four uh, pieces of the uh, uh, lipid nanoparticle. What's interesting here is that um, the, the cationic and amphipathic amphipathic lipid, which is a hydrophobic, hydrophilic um, lipid, has for the first time been called out again from chemistry. And that's what they're pointing to over here uh, that they're going after. And then lastly, there's been no answer to that, but because of course that was just filed. And then the last one is the big one that probably everybody's wondering, what does that look like? And it's Moderna against Pfizer. This is the first patent on the mRNA. Everything else has been lipid, if you've noticed. So it's all chemistry-based. This is the first one with an mRNA patent uh, that's being uh, issued against, uh, asserted against Pfizer. What's interesting here is my associate at uh, Mintz just pointed this out, James Whittle, and we're going to have to verify this, but it looks like it was uncovered that Acuitas has indemnified Pfizer and BioNTech in litigation. So if this is true, uh, it's going to be a big payday, um, not for Pfizer this direction. If that happens, it's going to be Acuitas, which is a, a very big company themselves. But I just want to show you what's going on here, and then I'll turn it over to um, turn it over to George. Um, this, of course, was filed last 
uh, August and claim 18 of the Moderna patent to the 574 patent. There's three patents being asserted against um, Pfizer. Claim 18 is very broad. It's a plurality of lipid nanoparticles comprising any cationic lipid, basically, any sterile, basically, any PEG lipid, basically, wherein this lipid nanoparticle has an mRNA where it has, ba whoops, has basically any of the bases that you would have in an mRNA and then where the uridines are modified. It doesn't say what the modification is. So this would be the dream of any patent attorney getting it issued. Remember that the Pfizer, the Pfizer vaccine has an mRNA in it. Now this mRNA we know is all is uh, modified. Now in the answer, I went to the answer from Pfizer. Pfizer admits in their answer that they have a one methyl pseudouridine mRNA in it. So they just answer it by saying, yes, they do. So I just inserted this over here. So they have admitted that their vaccine is exactly this. In the answers that Pfizer has already given, they have put up their general defenses. They basically have just put forth that they want a declaration of invalidity with no arguments proffered, a declaration of non-infringement with no arguments proffered. They have not put any invalidity arguments out there, which is interesting that they don't, they haven't done that. They have put out that, and, and George is going to talk a little bit about this going forward here, but that Pfizer and BioNTech basically have a license to all these patents, that they want unenforceability based on waiver is their defense, that they have an implied waiver as their defense, and then due to the acquiescence by Moderna, they have a right to practice. Those are their defenses. They haven't really put anything else into this answer. So that's basically the landscape from the intellectual property side of things. I hope this has been kind of whetted your appetite uh, for this. Where are we going on the horizon? There is an epidemic of COVID vaccine litigation. It's not just another patent war. It's only really just begun. Claim construction is really starting. There's probably going to be a lot of other players that jump into the fray. And uh, definitely the lipid nanoparticle delivery platform is here to stay for the foreseeable future. And George, I'll turn it over to you. Very great. Thanks so much. Here, I'll um, switch over. Okay, well, that, that was a really great uh, background. And uh, thanks. I actually learned a lot from that, Dean. So, um, you know, that, that that's really the meat of this uh, set of litigations. But and the reason that I find this all so fascinating is that from the litigation standpoint, there are a lot of parts of this litigation that don't come up that often in these, you know, multi-party uh, patent wars, this going back to the stent wars and, you know, you name it. Um, there's some pretty interesting novel features here. So I will talk about some of those. Um, the uh, IP waiver that the World Trade Organization uh, seemingly uh, imposed. Um, Moderna's dispute with the National Institutes of Health over ownership of some of its patents. 
the patent pledge that Dean uh, alluded to uh, that Moderna made, and then the uh, the federal government's role in all this and uh, whether they are the appropriate defendant in some of these cases. So um, the waiver, you know, this got a lot of press. Uh, for those who need a little bit of a refresher, we have uh, a 1994 uh, World Trade Organization agreement that covers intellectual property uh, that requires countries to have intellectual property laws, including patent laws, um, but also allows members of the WTO to issue compulsory licenses uh, if there are public health needs to do so subject to compensation, right? We see this has happened uh, in the past few decades in India, Thailand, South Africa, Brazil, um, other countries. And because this is a WTO treaty, what happens is uh, the WTO, of course, does not control, has no authority over national patent law. Um, the WTO, though, allows countries to seek trade sanctions against countries that don't live up to their treaty obligations, right? So if you uh, don't have a patent law that covers pharmaceutical products, which India didn't have before this, then other countries can bring an action against you at the WTO and impose trade sanctions. So shortly after the, uh, the pandemic um, arose in 2020, two countries, India and South Africa, proposed that the compulsory licensing type um, provisions under the TRIPS agreement be expanded to do a few things, to um, include not just patents, but also to include trade secrets. You know, there's increasing awareness that no matter how many patent rights and licenses you have, it's still pretty difficult to manufacture an mRNA vaccine, um, you know, notwithstanding the excellent explanation of the technology by people like Dean uh, and so forth. It's, it's not easy to put one of these into production. Therefore, a lot of trade secrets are often needed to, um, to do that. The, uh, the waiver that's proposed by these countries would also not have involved compensation to the, um, to the holders of the IP. And they uh, propose that this apply to all uh, technology relating to COVID-19. In a very big international surprise, the U.S. Trade Representative in May 2021 announced support of this measure, which um, is pretty unprecedented in uh, international uh, IP negotiations. The U.S. usually adopts a pretty um, hardcore stance on IP and doesn't like these types of waivers. In fact, uh, complained about all the compulsory licensing um, initiatives uh, that I had mentioned earlier. The waiver idea was opposed though by other companies, Germany, the UK, Switzerland. Nevertheless, after a couple of years, um, the World Trade Organization members did agree to a so-called IP waiver. However, it was much more limited than the waiver that India and South Africa and many other countries first uh, requested in that it only applied to patents. It did require compensation and only applied to COVID-19 vaccines. And you might say, well, that kind of looks just like what was already there under the existing compulsory licensing uh, provisions. And you, know, you would not be incorrect um, in thinking that. So um, nobody was really very happy with this on either side of the, uh, the fence. Um, there are continuing moves 
to try to include diagnostics and therapeutics along with vaccines under this waiver that uh, initially had a six month uh, six month uh, uh, pendency. It's been extended. Um, and uh, if nothing else, this is waiver only is going to last for five years. So this happened, um, didn't really result in a lot of significant changes, uh, despite um, all of the press and uh, angst around it. Okay, so focusing then in on the US, uh, what happened here with Moderna and NIH? So you know, long before COVID-19 emerged, uh, Moderna was collaborating with NIH on vaccines, including vaccines around other types of coronaviruses. In 2020, uh, Moderna filed three uh, specific applications on its 1273 mRNA spike protein uh, related vaccine. And uh, these are basically continuations. Uh, Moderna started its filing program on its um, uh, LNP um, uh, vaccine program uh, uh, 10 years ago, um, but, but it continued to file and uh, in, in the, the latest pandemic had um, more novel uh, features that it could file on. It omitted mentioning as inventors three NIH researchers, and that caused some controversy um, at NIH. And um, in 2021, Moderna, informed the PTO after NIH complained about this omission, that it was its good faith determination that those individuals did not rise to the level of co-inventors on the um, on, on the, uh, the claimed inventions. But NIH continued to oppose that position. Francis Collins uh, was quoted, quoted in the press as saying this was a serious mistake. NIH may very well um, flex its muscles and uh, seek legal recourse here. Um, interestingly, uh, just last December, Moderna entered into a license agreement for some other patents held by NIH, uh, co-owned with a couple of uh, research institutions with a pretty big price tag. Moderna paid 400 million um, in back royalties plus ongoing royalties to NIH, but this, uh, this, this, this uh, license doesn't cover the, um, the patents that are at issue um, in the, uh, the inventorship dispute, which is more or less still going on. Now, this brings us to Moderna's patent pledge. So in October of 2020, Moderna made a surprising announcement, right? It uh, announced that it was feeling people's pain during the uh, initial months of the outbreak of COVID-19. and. It uh, felt a special obligation to use its resources to bring the pandemic to an end as quickly as possible. As a result, it stated that while the pandemic continues, it would not enforce its COVID-19 patents against other vaccine makers. All right, um, why did it do this? There's a lot of speculation. Some of us speculated that Moderna did this to try to get NIH off its back. Um, to alleviate some of the controversy that was going on with this inventorship dispute. Um, that may or may not have been the case, but uh, we fast forward to March of last year, a little over a year ago, Moderna provided an update to its pledge. It did two things. Um, in least developed countries, um, of which there are 92 designated by COVAX, 
it extended its pledge so that it wouldn't end at the end of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, would, would be perpetual. Um, but it then kind of equivocated as to what would happen in other countries, other than the least developed countries. And it said, well, we don't think vaccine supply is a barrier to access anymore. In those countries, we expect those using our technology to respect our intellectual property, and we're willing to license that technology to others on commercially reasonable terms. All right. What that means is uh, subject to some debate. They're kind of mealy-mouthed, weaselly marketing words. They're, they're not lawyer words that are clear and uh, unequivocal. So it's a little hard to know what that means. But we get a much clearer picture of what we think Moderna uh, meant in August of last year when it brought suit against Pfizer and BioNTech for infringement of the patents that Dean mentioned, uh, both in the US and Germany. And in response to uh, the claim that uh, it was violating the pledge that it made, it, it uh, stated in its complaint that no, no, we only pledged that we wouldn't sue uh, others outside of the least developed countries while the pandemic continues. And in our opinion, the pandemic is over, right? So, uh, you know, they said, you know, they assess this to uh, mean that the collective fight against COVID-19 entered a new endemic phase in early 2022. So this raises a bunch of questions. And uh, Sarah uh, kindly pointed out just this morning, the WHO did officially announce that the uh, pandemic is over, so to speak. Um, so uh, some of this may be moot at this point, but there is still a period between March of 2022 and May of 2023 where Moderna, in theory, um, had uh, pledged to uh, uh, make its patents available without charge um, and didn't. And so there are many questions here. You know, the, the question of patent pledges is a complicated one. Uh, was this a binding legal uh, commitment or was it just, you know, altruistic marketing speak um, by a company who basically wanted to sell a lot of uh, vaccine doses to the U.S. government? Um, we don't know yet. And one big question is who decides when something like this pandemic is over? You know, I will point out that um, most or at least a few of the uh, significant pledges that were made during the pandemic that had an end date did tie that end date to the WHO's declarations. Um, Moderna, you know, didn't say whether they did or not. So it's still open to some debate. Um, I mean, I think many of us think that these pledges are binding. Uh, they are not that different from open source code licenses on which you know, most of the uh, global computing infrastructure relies. So I think that, um, you know, there's pretty good evidence that they are binding um, as long as they are still in force. So this is interesting. Uh, we'll see if the courts uh, do say anything about this in this litigation. Um, all right. So uh, final topic that relates to all of this is section 1498. So 28 USC 1498 is a... Um, a uh, little known section of the US code, but uh, which is very important in the patent world, which essentially allows governmental use of any US patent. Uh, so the US government or its contractors are authorized to operate under any US patent 
so long as that use is for the U.S. government. So this clause is used all the time um, in government contracting. Um, it's been used about 50 times in the uh, sort of biopharma area over uh, the last you know, half century or so, uh, primarily for use by the military. So when the military uh, during the 70s was uh, you know, fighting in, in Vietnam and places with high levels of infection, uh, this uh, clause is uh, invoked to uh, produce tetracycline, uh, for example, for the armed forces. Um, it's used in all sorts of military technologies. If you know the latest uh, fighter jet um, infringes uh, a company's patent, um, you know that company. There's no way that that company can go seek an injunction um, to prevent that jet from being manufactured uh, for, I think, obvious reasons. The only remedy that the patent holder is a case brought in the U.S. Federal Court of Claims uh, for. Uh, reasonable royalty or reasonable compensation for the use of that patent, right? So this is a remedial, um, it's, it's sort of a limitation uh, or it's an exclusion to the federal government's sovereign immunity um, for patent infringement cases that allows the federal government to be sued in its own court, in federal court, but only for monetary compensation without the equitable remedy of injunctive relief. Okay, so that's the backdrop. This has been around for, um, you know, the better part of a century. So what happened with these COVID-19 vaccines? In August 2020, as you know, Project Warp Speed uh, was put in place and um, Health and Human Services, uh, in conjunction with the Department of Defense, uh, entered into a uh, procurement contract uh, with Moderna. Uh, for the production and then the supply of those vaccines under a federal contract that incorporates the uh, federal acquisition regulations or FAR clauses that expressly invoke Section 1498. So it's unambiguous that this procurement um, contract uh, is invoking um, Section 1498 governmental use. So, when Arbutus uh, and Dan Van sue Moderna for infringement of the uh, LNP um, patents that uh, Dean mentioned, um, and, and I'll nail them uh, a month later, oops, um, it's not surprising that Moderna invoked Section 1498 as an affirmative defense, saying, okay, we don't think we infringe. But even if we did infringe uh, Arbutus and Alnylam, your remedy is in the Federal Court of Claims uh, for a monetary remedy against the federal government and not against us. So interestingly, um, both of these cases are brought in the District of Delaware um, and uh, Moderna's uh, motions to dismiss um, in, in both of the cases were denied by uh, two different district judges in the District of Delaware. Um, basically saying that's too early in the litigation to uh, make this call. There's more uh, discovery and factual determination uh, that needs to be made. Did Moderna actually act under U.S. government authorization and consent as required under Section uh, 1498? The um, Al Nylum motion to dismiss was actually just denied last week 
um, that that case is again moving on a little bit of a slower track. So in a very interesting turn of events, in February of this year, the uh, the federal government filed a statement of interest in the Arbutus case, saying that Moderna's right. Um, we did expressly authorize and consent to Moderna's operation under any uh, U.S. patents um, for governmental purposes. And therefore, the U.S. government um, invites Arbutus and arguably Al-Nilam as well to uh, bring their claim in the court of claims and um, not, you know, sort of logically not to sue Moderna um, in district court. So um, this is all pretty recent. The, um, you know, the counter argument that's been made uh, in response to this U.S. government statement of interest is uh, by uh, um, uh, the, uh, the plaintiffs in these cases is that, well, you know, these vaccines really are not, were not for government use in the same way that Section 1498 was contemplated, right? This is not the VA hospital system. This is not the armed forces um, distributing vaccines to, you know, government employees, uh, to the armed uh, armed forces. This is for essentially the civilian population of the United States. And so, it, and, and, and there, we obviously don't have time, but there is case law that suggests that that might not be a terrible argument. So we'll see uh, what happens here. This will be a, a very important um, decision, one of the, the more important decisions under Section 1498 that, that we've had. Um, and uh, again, coming up in this very interesting um, set of uh, uh, cases. So um, yeah, it's a, so it's a rarity, by the way, that the U.S. government steps forward and says, "No, no, we're liable. Please uh, sue us instead." Um, you know, but again, you know, you, you saw it here first. Uh, the federal government wants to be liable um, under these claims, in in theory, uh, because the government wants to prepare for the next pandemic and assure technology developers that they will indeed be protected. Right. Um, in a, a field of very rapid technology development during an emergency, uh, we want producers to jump in there, develop these uh, these technologies as fast as possible, um, without worrying too much about being sued for patent infringement. And that's what 1498 does, whether it's in the midst of a war um, or a public emergency like this. So. Um, uh, you know, the slides will be made available to you. I, I, I've written about all of these topics uh, in various places. Um, and so I thank you. And uh, that's uh, the end of my comments. Thank you, George, for that. Uh, those are both really fascinating presentations. And I thought, um, you know, we still have a few minutes left, but I thought maybe we'd throw out just one or two questions um, to give our panel a chance to get some more reactions. George, you talked a lot about the patent pledge. Could, could, could you could you speak up or just a little closer to the mic? Just a little better. Yeah, yeah. Much better. Much better. Um, so you talked a lot about the patent pledge during your presentation, and I'm wondering if you have thoughts, George or Dean, you may as well, about whether you think we're likely to see one of these patent pledges 
again in the future like Moderna or is this really just a, a one-off situation in terms of what we've seen there? I mean, there are thousands of patent pledges out there. Um, I mean, Moderna is just one of many. I mean, will Moderna do it again? That I, I couldn't tell you. Um, but, you know, in the pandemic alone, um, there were pledges that were made by the large hospital ventilator manufacturers, you know, Medtronic and Smith's group. Um, AbbVie made a pledge with respect to its uh, its HIV drug, Caletra, um, for, you know, potential use. Um, uh, you know, many, uh, over 30 large um, information technology and uh, equipment companies pledged something like 500,000 patents under the open COVID pledge to uh, the pandemic response. Um, and, in, and in other fields, pledges are being made um, widely. So, so I think this is a well-accepted um, and a well-understood uh, mechanism these days. So I, I think plenty more will be made. Um, you know, one might think, well, is Moderna regretting this? And um, maybe, I mean, I, I think that if Moderna did make its pledge in order to alleviate NIH's concerns um, and make NIH less uh, interested in getting its own inventors onto the patent, because if, if NIH succeeded in uh, getting its inventors to be listed as co-inventors on the patent, then NIH would be a co-owner of the patent and could make the patent uh, widely available um, to others around the world. I and mean, there are many things NIH could have done with it that I think um, you know, were in play. Uh, but uh, the NIH dispute didn't go away. <laughs> um, they're still wrangling uh, over that. And so, um, you know, Moderna's budget, if that was the reason for it, it didn't really um, go uh, go as planned. Um, and even so, Moderna couldn't have been that unhappy with its pledge because in March of last year, they did make it perpetual with respect to uh, 92 least developed countries. Uh, and, and I think that, if nothing else, is a good and very altruistic um, gesture. Dean, you know, you have some slides on the complexity of all the web of many different litigations over the COVID vaccine patents. And obviously the claims are different in these cases, but to what extent I'm wondering are, does it seem like even at this early stage are courts and parties playing the rulings and briefings off of one another in the different cases? Or does it sort of feel like the web is operating with a lot of different UBI and not really What was the very last part you said? A lot of- Oh yeah, uh, it's a lot of different, um, I guess, are they, are you seeing the parties playing off one another or- Yeah, really okay, that that good. So it was interesting that you said that because I, I was flipping to the back to see are the same law firms representing the same parties and they're not. And then I began to get my analysts to compare the arguments from the different law firms representing the same parties, for instance. So the same parties are not representing Arbutus, for example, um, against the same party, for instance. And so I wanted to see how those arguments were stacking up so that they weren't crashing into each other. And were they paralleling each other. So you can imagine they must be talking to one another because when I was co-counsel 
when I was at Wilmer Hale and George was at Wilmer Hale the same time I was, uh, which was really cool. Um, you got to make sure you're lining up with one another and you're not wedging uh, with one another. Um, it's curious, you know, uh, that you're saying this because there are companies going on what I call licensing rampages in the LMP space as well, because they're taking their patents and going out and saying, you need a license to our technology behind all of this. And I'm sure if people are not, they're going to sue them. So not just these players, but other players coming behind them. Um, and so we're going to see that same thing happening because people are looking at these cases to go, how is that prior art stacking up? One of the questions you could ask is, how did the IPR play out with Moderna and Arbutus? So Moderna was trying to take down Arbutus's patent while well, they failed. And so that patent was asserted by Arbutus against Moderna. And it's interesting how these, these parties are playing out against one another and others are watching how that prior art failed or or didn't fail and how the arguments played out and how that art is being used in other cases in other other you know in other parties and so yes they are watching each other because you can see how the arguments are playing and so um it it will be interesting to watch i i was talking to my team because we represent two of the parties inside mints with two different teams not in the litigation but in earlier companies and so pulling together these these um backgrounds into databases are very important to watch and i think any any firm that is representing lnp companies you have to be abreast of what's happening in this area very good question yeah. Um, so we're just about out of time, but I just want to say, say thank you so much, uh, both to Dean and George, Professor Contreras, for joining us uh, today to really excellent presentations um, and to our attendees. I hope you enjoyed the presentation. Um, please come to future VBA events. And Devin can provide copies of the slides if anyone's interested in getting a second. And will the recording be available to those who might want to hear it later? Um, yes, so it will be available on our website in the Learn Online portion, and I can um, send you a copy as well. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm.